0: Hello everyone, welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 47. I'm Jamie Berger and my guest today is Matthew Silverstein. Before I tell you how I know him, let me give you his professional biography. He is assistant professor and program head of philosophy at NYU Abu Dhabi. He got his BA at Amherst, his BPhil at Oxford, and his PhD at Michigan. Matthew Silverstein is interested in the foundations of ethics, that is, the question of what, if anything, we can say on behalf of our most basic ethical commitments. We talk a little about that. Mostly we talk about you too. His current work is located at the intersection of meta-ethics and the philosophy of action. Silverstein's other philosophical interests include normative ethics, the philosophy of action, political philosophy, early modern European philosophy, and the history of ethics, which must be especially interesting to study now that ethics is over. But I know him as Maddie, a dear friend of my wife and her family, and now me, for the past decade. About 20 years ago, though, he was just a young student who was traveling in Dublin. And one of the reasons he was in Dublin was that he was a huge fan of the rock band known as U2. What you're about to hear is a fan story, a meet your heroes story, which no matter how many times I tell people that this podcast is about fame, it's not just chats with famous people. So few not famous people, believe me. I never know how I'm gonna feel about an episode until it's done and I'm listening to it in my car the next day. But I have had a great time editing this, and I really think that this kind of thing is a huge part of what will make fifteen minutes a fascinating show. Any of you out there, at the end of the episode, I'm gonna tell you how you can reach me. Do you have a Meet Your Heroes story that that you'd like to tell the world? If it doesn't work, I'll tell you. Another good friend of mine told me a story of his grandfather and many near-misses almost meeting somebody. And while I loved him telling me it, it just didn't make for an episode. I'm telling you that because it might work out, it might not, but I know you've got some great stories out there and I'd love to hear them. And again, I'll tell you how to get in touch on the other side. For now, Maddie and I talked a lot about you too, but also about philosophy a little bit and his own feelings about fame and about his fandom of other things, such as the Cubbies and Celtics and Roger Federer. So make yourselves comfortable and we'll let Maddie take it from there. We spoke on Skype after a few false starts in late September. Hello, Maddie, are you there? I am here. All right working I'm talking to Matt Silverstein in Abu Dhabi and we are struggling with the Skype <laughs> so yes now you're, you're coming in loud and clear at the moment good excellent the reason I've asked you to come on is as you know that you you long before before I started this podcast you told me a fan story and I'd like it to Tell it again in in whatever fashion you like, and maybe I'll ask you a question now and then if there's anything.
1: Um, So I'll give you the long version, which obviously you you can cut down to size. Um, So after I graduated uh, from college, I had what's called a Watson Fellowship, where the uh, foundation pays for you to leave the United States, spend a year abroad studying uh, something that you can't study at an institution. And ostensibly I was studying classical music performance practice. (laughs) Um, And in particular, the role that the concept of authenticity plays in performances of classical music on old instruments. Uh, But one of the nice things about the Watson Foundation is that they encourage you to do extracurricular travel. They want you to become a citizen of the world. And so I spent a lot of time traveling around Western Europe just doing some sightseeing. And uh, in early December, I went, so I was based in London for the first half of my fellowship, and in early December, I went to Dublin for a week, uh, just to, I'd never been to Ireland to travel around. Um, But one of the other reasons Dublin was one of my priorities is that I was and remain a humongous U2 fan. Um, I I have been a fan, I had been a fan since the late 80s. Um, I was a little young to to miss their early uh to, to experience their early stuff um but after the joshua tree came out i was hooked and saw rattle and hum and totally fell in love with bono um, and their earnestness and yeah and so i had this i had done a bunch of research before i got to dublin uh, and I had looked at all of these YouTube-related sites, some of which, you know, were probably meaningful for most fans, like the studio, the old studio where they had recorded some of their earliest albums. And um, But I also, you know, I found this this website that had a list of things like the hospital Bono was born in <laughs> and... A restaurant in town that was owned by his brother um, and various things. So, you know, I spent the week doing sightseeing, but kind of interspersed it with, like, oh, you know, there's the hospital Bonham was born at and so on. And so the last day I was there, uh, I did some sightseeing in the morning and then I walked across town out into the docks, which is just this heavily industrial area. Uh, where I had read that their recording studio was—it's—it's it's, uh, was on a sort of uh, section of the docks called Hanover Key, and I had read that it was kind of an unmarked building in an industrial area, uh, but that if I got lucky, I would be able to find it.
0: But you had no no number address.
1: Yeah, there's there was no number address. It's 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 not a super long street. Uh, but, of course, I got out there. I got out there, I think, about one or two in the afternoon, and it's totally unmarked, right? It's a bunch of businesses and warehouses and, and you know, shipping companies and courier companies. And it's not as though, you know, I had kind of hoped there would be a big sign that said, you know, YouTube recording here.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, that's likely. Right, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> um, But there wasn't. And so I wandered around for 10 or 15 minutes and was feeling pretty down. Uh, And then I finally ran into a total stranger and asked him, uh, someone who worked there, if he knew where the YouTube recording studio was. And he pointed just down the street at, you know, if I had been paying more attention, I probably should have noticed this myself, at a vintage Mercedes parked outside one of the buildings. And he said, see that? That's Bono's car.
0: Wow. Do you remember? Was he... Like, oh, God, another American fan? Or was he happy and charmed to?
1: No, I, I think I mean, I don't remember him being happy or charmed, but he, he he was certainly happy to help. Right. He didn't roll his eyes at me or anything.
0: You weren't in Paris.
1: Right. And I think he may have known I was a diehard fan because I was there in the middle of December. <laughs> um, and, you know, Dublin in December is cold and rainy. Um, and so it was, it was not a, it was not a horrible day, but it was not a beautiful day. And, uh, so I was, you know, traipsing out there with my backpack. I had been backpacking, right. I was living out of a backpack for most of my time on the Watson fellowship. And, uh, yeah. And he was just, he, so he, he was, he was happy to help. Um, and I had this great feeling cause I was like, okay, if I just stand by this car long enough, I will see Bono. <laughs> um, and so that was my plan. I kind of, parked myself across the street, and sat on the curb and just waited. Uh, Did you say what year this is? This was um, December 1998. So they had just finished the Pop Mart tour, uh, the tour after they released the, the sort of um, techno-y, disco album pop. And uh, they were in the process, the early stages of recording the album that would become All That You Can't Leave Behind. So yeah, I just sat there and I was like, okay, this is, this is my plan. I'm just going to sit here until they come out. Um, and after maybe an hour, the door opened and a, a security guard style guy, I mean, he wasn't wearing a uniform, but he, you know, clearly worked there, came out, uh, came across the street where I was sitting and introduced himself and asked me a little about myself, probably trying to figure out whether I was a, you know, lunatic, um, and yeah, he said, you know, that fans, you know, can sit across. They, they prefer that we sit, uh, the, that I sit on the far side of the street rather than directly in front of the building. Um, but that if I waited, uh, then the, when the band came out, they would probably be happy to take some pictures
0: and sign autographs and say hello. Great. And, and they had seen you out the window, perhaps? or?
1: But, yeah, I mean, he had seen me. I don't know that. Yeah, that they probably had cameras and stuff um, to monitor. And so I have no idea how he knew I was there. Um, But I wasn't there that long before he came out. Um, And I asked him how long he thought they would be. And he said they would probably be there pretty late. Uh, Sometimes they'd leave early, but they'd probably be there pretty late. And I said, late as in 7 or 8. And he said, no, no, late as in like midnight or 1 a.m. And then I remember asking him if I had time, he thought, to go back into town to get some supplies. Because I had not planned Sort of camping out all day, um, foolishly. I, I had assumed that, oh, they work nine to five and then, you know. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, and, you the rock, know. rock and roll lifestyle.
1: Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, and he, he said, I probably had time, but, you know, he said there's always a chance they'll leave. Um, and so he went back inside, and I remember just being sort of tormented I really wanted to go I, I was not dressed appropriately I had was wearing a jacket but I had only a t-shirt on it I had nothing to eat and I just didn't have a lot to do <laughs> like I had one I had so this was of course before iPods I had a Discman but I had only one CD um, it was of course a U2 CD but still
0: <laughs> ah. what, what, do you remember what album?
1: I don't remember what it was um, I had a bunch of bootlegs already at that time and I would guess it was a a bootleg from one of their concerts, uh, but I don't remember. Um, so after like maybe a half hour of agonizing about what to do, uh, I finally decided I, I just I had to go back. I wasn't gonna make it. And so I walked back into the center of town. Uh, I was staying in a youth hostel. And while I was there, I picked up my camera or maybe some batteries for my camera. I picked up a bunch more CDs. I picked up like an extra sheet that I had that I could fold up and sit on so I wouldn't have to sit on the cold curb. And I put a sweater on and just, you know, basically stocked up for the night.
0: Basic insane fan preparation. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) Um, And uh, and, and, uh, to try and sort of lessen the time I was away, I took a cab on the way back uh, because I was in the center of town. So it was easy to get a cab going back there. And of course, the driver, you know, one of the things I realized over the time I was there that like half the people in Dublin had run into Bono at some point. And so when I told, you know, I told the driver to take me out to the docks, and he said, why the hell do you want to go there? And I told him I was trying to to meet the the band. And he was like, oh, yeah, I once sat next to Bono at a movie
0: theater and, you know, started telling me all these stories. And it is your it's your last day in town This is your only shot. So
1: that's right. I mean, I wasn't on a tight schedule. I hadn't flown. I had taken the ferry. So my schedule was flexible, but I had not planned on staying uh, any longer. Um, and so the whole ride back, we were chatting, but I was also really nervous that we'd get there and all the cars would be gone. Um, but it was fine. We pulled up and all the cars were still there. And so then I knew, I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm going to stay here until, I, <laughs> until Bono comes out, basically. Um, and, uh I think I got back probably around 4.30 or so, and so I was, I was in it for the long haul. Um, and I remember that I was pacing, uh, you know, just trying to keep busy. I had brought a book, and I was reading and listening to music, and at some point I got really bored, and so I started singing a hundred bottles of beer on the wall to myself. <laughs> um, like, I was just walking back and forth singing that song. Uh, right next to the studio, there was like a motorcycle messenger company. And you know, so there were guys coming and going on little motorcycles the whole time I was there. And of course, they noticed me, and a couple of them came over and said hello and wanted to know why I was sitting out there. But they were really nice, and one of them brought me a couple cups of tea, um, and you know, because because I, I was it was really cold. And but they so they brought me tea to keep me warm and kind of joked and said, you know, yeah, we see fans do this all the time. They usually do it in the summer. <laughs> And uh, but yeah, they, they were they were really funny and, and nice about it, um, and so I think you know maybe around six or seven o'clock the door of the studio opens and Adam Clayton the bassist uh, comes out, and so there are a bunch of cars there are four or five cars parked outside and his is a yellow Aston Martin, nice An, a vintage a vintage Aston Martin, um, and you uh, I said hello, and he he walked over and introduced uh, himself, and we chatted very briefly, but he said he had to run, he was late for something, but that he'd be coming back in an hour or so, and that he'd be happy to chat more. Um, And I remember being a little, you know, and then he drove off, and I remember being a little disappointed that, you know, okay, that didn't bode well. he he, You know, he wasn't mean or anything, but he kind of was rushed, um, and I didn't get a very good vibe. Um, And so off he went, and I, uh, you know, resumed my my. That's
0: pretty demanding of you. Uh, in, in what sense? <laughs> I mean, you weren't like, oh my god, I <laughs> I, I just met. Well, you know, I had such high hopes. You
1: know, I worshiped these guys, <laughs> and I just, yeah. you know, I wanted. Yeah, I just wanted them to live up to this fantasy that I had of them, right? Of these, you know. Okay, wait,
0: wait. let's take a time out. What's the fantasy at this point?
1: Um, that they're they're these sort of thoughtful right but of, of of what's going to happen oh I, well of course you know <laughs> yeah so the fantasy of what would so my, i think the biggest fantasy was that they would notice i was freezing and it would invite me in <laughs> um that obviously did not happen um but then, you know, just that they would come out and, you know, give me a hug or something and just be really happy <laughs> to see me and wanna know all about me and that I'd get a chance to tell them how much their music meant to me, right? Cause it wasn't just that, oh, you know, here's some famous people. It was, I worshiped these guys and I loved their music and it meant so much to me and I wanted to kind of talk to them about it. Um, and I wanted them to invite me in and, you know ask me to join a song and <laughs> <laughs> I forget. Do you play? Something? No, no, not at all. I, I have a good singing voice, but I, I you could sing. Yeah, you know. right. Exactly. You know, some backup vocals. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was just. It, it just. It was my first encounter with the actual band, and it was ever so slightly disappointing. Um, but he came back as you know he had said about an hour later, um, and he was not in a rush at all, and and he really you know he got out of the car and um, you know. I think I had told him what my name was and he called me by my name, he had remembered. And, you know, we chatted for five minutes, maybe it wasn't long, he signed. uh, So one of the things I had done when I had gone back into town to get stuff is I had bought a bunch of these beautiful YouTube postcards with photographs that had been used for the cover of the Joshua Tree and things like that. Um, But beautiful glossy postcards and and a Sharpie pen. And so he signed uh, the postcard and we just chatted and he was just really nice and wanted to know, you know, about Chicago. And of course, I shouldn't have told him I was from Chicago because as soon as I did, he was like, oh, the cold doesn't bother you. <laughs> <laughs> like I should have said I was from Malibu or something and that I had never experienced this level of <laughs> this temperature in my life. But, um, yeah, he was he was great. And he. um Uh, and so we chatted for five minutes and he signed the postcard and he went inside and disappeared. Um, but I was like totally energized because I had had the kind of interaction I wanted and, you know, he had been really nice and asked me questions and we had talked a little about the music. And so I was like, this is awesome. Uh, and you know,
0: (laughs) this is awesome. I'm going to settle right in.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, and then I remember the guy, the security guard came back out and gave me a cup of coffee, um, coffee. And, uh, yeah, so it just felt like everything was going well. (laughs) And then maybe about nine 30, um, of course I'd had two cups of tea and a cup of coffee and I really had to go to the bathroom. Um, you know, and I'm sitting out on the curb, all the, you know, it's not like there, there, nothing is public here, right? These are all industrial places and businesses. Um. And are there I, people
0: coming and going or is it like nothing is stupid vacant? There
1: are still people in, uh, coming and going into the courier company the motorcycles are still appearing because they were having some computer issues and so a bunch of guys were staying late and so it's some you know I was like I'm just gonna hold it I'm not gonna pee on the street <laughs> because then you know mad at me um, but finally like you know I felt like I was gonna lose it and so I went up to one of the courier guys, the guy who brought me the tea and said, can I please come in and use the bathroom?" they were, they were fine. They were just really, of course, come on in. Uh, But I remember this so distinctly. As soon as I got into the bathroom and shut the door, like there were four or five guys there and they all started shouting, Oh, Bono's coming out. He's driving away. You're missing. (laughs) And of course I was like 98% sure that they're kidding, but a part of me is still panicking. (laughs) Um, And so I like washing my hands really fast. And they had a hair dry, like one of those hand dryers, you know, the hot air dryers. And I wanted to, you know, like sit there with my hands under it for a half hour. But I was I was way too worried that I would miss them. Um, And so but, you know, by the time I got out there, all the cars were still there and they had just been messing with me. Um, And so, you know, back I went pacing, listening to music and stuff. Um, And then finally, I think about 1130 in the evening. um, So when did you arrived? So I arrived there first, I think about one, but then I was there for an hour, an hour and a half. And then I went into town for about, I think I was probably in town for about an hour. Um, so by the time the door opened at 1130, I had been back there for at least six hours. Um, and it was cold, right? I mean, this was December, it was light rain, not, you know, it was sort of sort of Ireland mist. <laughs> um, so it was cold and wet. Um, At 1130, the door opens and Bono appears in the doorway. He's still talking to someone inside, but I see him. And I remember I had been sitting down at that point and I stood up and I thought like, this is it. And like, I was, you know, at at this point I had such a huge crush on him and I was like worried I was going to just swoon. Um, And, you know, my heart is racing. Um, And, you know, after he's done talking to the guy in the doorway, he, he walks straight towards me. He's carrying some things, but he walks just straight towards me and says hello. Um, and, you know, my, my knees are weak. Um, and he asks me who I am. And he signs, uh, he's, you know, he says he'd be, I ask him if he would be willing to sign this postcard, um, so he signs the same one that Adam had signed, and I was going to get all four of the autographs on the same postcard. You know, we chatted again. I told him I was from Chicago, and he talked about playing in Chicago. And I told him about how much their music meant and, and so on. And, you know, we probably talked for two or three minutes. He was clearly kind of tired. It was the end of a long day, but he was happy to chat. And then, and of course, this is the, the moment that I'll never forget. He says how are you getting back into town? And I told him I was walking and, and I remember saying, I'm walking and it's totally fine. And he said, no, let me give you a lift. And you know, I was just stunned. <laughs> um, and I think if, if I remember correctly, he just kind of walked over to his car on the assumption that of course I would say yes. And I desperately wanted to, but I also wanted to meet (laughs) the other two members of the band. I wanted to meet The Edge and Larry Mullen Jr., and I wanted to get their autographs as well. And so I actually was kind of torn.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, (laughs) I know. What is wrong with you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was only for a moment. But what what sealed it was the the security guard, the same guy I had talked to earlier, who had opened the door for Bonham, was kind of holding the door open and watching what was going on. I remember looking at him like, what do I do? (laughs) And he just kind of looked at me and nodded as if to say like, get in the car, you idiot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, and that settled. it. And, And actually by that time, Bono had pulled the car out into the street and stopped right in front of me. So, so the passenger door was right in front of me. And I, I, yeah, I I made a decision. I opened the, this door and, and got into the front seat and sat next to him as he um, as he drove to town. Um, and you know I was just stunned. It was maybe a five minute drive, so it wasn't. We didn't have very long in the car. Um, you know he was heading home, and but we had five minutes to talk. And I remember very distinctly we talked. You know, I, again, we talked about the music and some of the things I loved about it. And I told them I loved that their, that their music had so much soul, but that they could express it so effectively in so many different ways. And we talked about how much more sophisticated their music had become over the years. Um, and then at some point, I remember asking him if he thought I was just a lunatic uh, for sitting out for, for seven hours to, to, to meet him. And he said something really nice. Um, He said that there were two kinds of people who tend to wait outside. Um, He said there are some people who are just interested in meeting celebrities. Um, And it was clear, you know, I mean, I don't know if he had a problem with them, but, you know, he didn't think much of that. Uh, But then he said there were other people who waited outside because the music meant a lot to them and they really wanted to meet the people who were responsible for it. Um, he said those are the fans, um, and that he totally understood that because he liked to think of himself as a fan of many people. Uh, and the one person that he mentioned uh, was Frank Sinatra, someone that he had been a huge fan of, um, and that you know he had gone out of his way to try and meet and sing with on various occasions. Um, and of course, the suggestion I think was that I was one of those, <laughs> rather than one of the one of the other people. And so you know that was that was nice that he understood that it wasn't just about celebrity, but that, you know, that, that I, there was something that meant a lot to me and that I wanted to, to come face to face with, with the people who had sort of created it. Um, You know, after that, we were basically, we were in the center of town and he was starting already to dial home. He was going to call his wife and let her know that he was on his way home. Um, And he, he, Pulled up. I told him he could drop me off anywhere. My, my hostel was pretty much in the center of town, and I, I told him I'd be happy to walk. And so he dropped me off right in front of Trinity College, Dublin. Um, and he had actually started to dial his wife. Or he had started to call her. And um, so she answered, and he said, hello, and then said, hang on a second. And he stopped the car. And, and I opened the door and started to get out. And he reached his hand across, and we shook hands, and he said, God bless you, Matthew. And um, you know, I said, I think I said something like, take care, <laughs> um, and, you know, closed the door and off he went. Um, and I remember just being so elated, uh, you know, I wanted to just shout like as the car was pulling off because it was, it was, it was the night in downtown, you know, sort of city center Dublin. And so it was still quite busy and people were all over and I wanted to say, you know, do you know who that was? And uh, so I had like a 10 minute walk back to the hostel and I was just walking on air. I was so, you know, cause I had, you know, as I had, I had hoped that, that, he, that these guys that I had worshipped would in some ways live up to my expectations, but I had not expected anything like that. And I, I remember being so pleased because I think his, his, his offering me the ride was so generous. It was not generous because I needed a ride, right? Yeah, it was cold, but it was maybe a 25 minute walk. Um, and you know, I would have been totally fine. Um, it was generous because he knew it would be a big deal for me and it was easy for him to do, but also easy for him not to do. You know, if he had just gotten in his car and driven off, I never would have thought what a jerk for not offering a total stranger a ride into town. Um, you know, he, 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 took an opportunity, and obviously it was very little inconvenience to him to just do something really nice. It was very generous, right, Because for me, and and that just made me feel great. Um, But I did want to – I wasn't done (laughs) because I hadn't – as a result of taking the ride, I hadn't met the other members of the band. And so I did end up changing Uh – plans. Um, I decided to stay in Dublin another day, um, and I went back to the studio the next day at 11 in the morning to try and meet the other members of the band. Um, nobody, wow. Nobody was there. I had no idea whether they were even going to show up Nobody was there. Um, But I just said, "Okay, well, I'll stick around for a few hours and see what happens. And people did start coming. And Bono was actually the first member of the band to show up. And I remember him saying something like, you know, he got out of the car, saw me sitting there and he said, Matthew, you're still here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I explained, I said, look, I'm not crazy. It's just because you gave me a ride. I didn't get to meet Edge and Larry Mullen Jr. And I, I was hoping to meet them as well. Um, And then Adam pulled up at the same time and they were both going in together. And I asked Bono if we could take a picture. And of course, this is before a phone. So I had an actual camera with film. And I was hoping that Adam or maybe one of the security guards would sort of take a proper picture. but, But Adam, I think, had already gone in and there was nobody else there. And so Bono, just like, you know, before I knew it, he grabbed the camera, put his arm around me, held it out in front of us, took the picture handed it back and said, gotta go. And in he went. Um, And of course, you know, I had no idea whether this picture would turn out. (laughs) I wouldn't find out until later, uh, but still I was pretty excited. Um, And then before long the Edge and Larry Mullen showed up. I remember distinctly that the Edge drove this beautiful vintage green Mercedes. So so Bono had a, a silver vintage Mercedes. The Edge had a green vintage Mercedes Adam had a yellow Aston Martin. And then the last person to show Larry Mullen Jr. comes in this black Volkswagen, (laughs) like this totally normal (laughs) (laughs) random car. Um, But I ended up getting all of their autographs. I got a second autograph from Bono on a separate postcard, um, just him. And um, so I actually have both postcards framed. One of them,
0: Please tell me you're gonna you're gonna be able to send me a picture of these postcards and and the photo.
1: Yeah. Well, so well, hold on. Um, so the postcards I have framed. Uh, one of them has all four autographs on it, and the other has just Bono's autograph. Um, however, <laughs> um, when I got the film developed, you know, like the next oh day, no, yeah, the picture <laughs> was a great shot of me grinning and the tiny corner of Bono's orange-tinted sunglasses.
0: Yes, that'll do.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I have to find it. <laughs> this is not a digital photograph.
0: And I really want you to try to find that. There's,
1: there's no evidence whatsoever other than my insisting that it's actually Bono <laughs> rather than, you know, a random orange speck next to me. Um, but he took like a great picture of me grinning and he doesn't appear at all. And so that was the one... I mean, I don't think I really need the proof, um, because it really was, you know, all about the the, the experience for me. Um, but it's, you know, part of me wishes I had a nice picture of the two of us. Um, but I, I remember also, you know, shortly after, you know, I did a lot of traveling, I was on my Watson Fellowship, and I quickly stopped telling people the story, at least people that I was meeting, because I... Like, I, I didn't want it to be like, oh, I'm, you know, I have this amazing, I don't know, I, I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to be the equivalent of selling the autographed postcards on eBay, right? I didn't want it to be something that I would use to, for myself, right? To, to, as a conversation starter or as a way to get people to think I had was cool or something like that. And of course, I f- had never dreamed of selling these postcards or doing anything with them other than cherishing them. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, after first telling, you know, random people the story, cause I couldn't just believe, I couldn't believe that it had happened. Um, I kind of stopped telling people the story. I wrote it up in a long email for my family and friends. Um, but aside from that, I didn't tell a lot of people because I just kind of wanted, I wanted to, it to be for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I now realize it's almost 20 years ago. Uh, and you know every time I've gone so I've seen them in concert many times since then some of those concerts I have been very close to the stage and I still have this you know at least a glimmer of a fantasy that Bono will look up and you know our eyes will meet and he'll be like hey I remember you (laughs) Um, but but sadly that has yet to happen
0: (laughs) well because you held it precious I I really appreciate you telling it because It's a wonderful story. And I, some people are not comfortable being fans. I am very comfortable being a fan. I I usually don't speak to people unless I feel I have something actually to say to them at this point. But I have no hesitation being a super fan.
1: It's, it's, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, I mean, I like all kinds of music and, but like my, my, the, the level of fandom. Than I have for you too, and the kind of way in which I love them um, far surpasses anything else, uh, except maybe my love for the Chicago Cubs. Um,
0: well, I was going to get to that. My, my German mother in law doesn't appreciate how much you love the rock and roll. I don't yeah,
1: think. of course. And I, you know, that's good, especially because I'm, sure, I'm sure she's baffled by it because she also knows that I love opera and classical music and she doesn't understand how I could love those things and also love
0: you too. I know you as loving opera, classical music, the Cubs, the Celtics or NBA in general. Yeah. There's one other fandom of yours that you haven't mentioned. Roger. Oh, yes, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and there may be others, but that's the one I know of.
1: Yeah. No, that's and and, and yeah, my love for Federer is not quite as deep as my love for the Cubs. Um, of course, it's much more recent. So I was raised a Cubs fan. My dad was a lifelong Cubs fan. In 1984, when I was nine, the Cubs made the playoffs for the first time in 40 years, and they it was a five-game series against the Padres. They went up two games to none, and then lost three in a row. And like I was nine, and I cried and cried when it was over. My um, my dad actually came up to my room. And sat on the edge of the bed where I was just bawling. And he said, this is what it means to be a Cubs
0: fan. Oh, man. Well, that because of that and because you are a philosopher, I'm going to give you a horrible, dystopian, hypothetical situation. Okay. (laughs) You've seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Uh, No, I haven't. Do you get the premise that you can erase memories? Yep. Yep. If you had to lose a memory would it be of the cubs last summer or of the bono interaction that's horrible thing to say <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> uh, you, okay it, maybe it's on you can ponder that
1: i, I don't want to sully either of them but i actually think
0: you have a gut reaction
1: yeah, and it's it's if I had to forget one of them, it would be the Bono encounter.
0: That's a Cubs fan, people. Yeah, wow. I mean, I
1: think it's because like the Bono encounter, as awesome as it was, it was totally unexpected. It was never like if, if it had never happened, I would not have felt that. Wow, my life is missing this amazing encounter with Bono. Well, here, here's yeah, here's another way to put it, right? If I were if I were on my deathbed, I think. Among many things I was sad about, I would be sad that the Cubs had never won the World Series during my life. Whereas I think, you know, I would have been like, well, you know, if someone had said, oh, you never got to meet Bono. I would have been like, yeah, OK, but what are the odds of that happening? Or, I, I don't know. It just it, it would not have felt like the lack. Um, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the Cubs winning the World Series last year has provided all the fulfillment from sports I ever Need, right? I mean, I'll enjoy other victories for other teams, them, Federer, and who knows what in the future. But I feel like if I never get another winning team or player ever as a fan, like that's okay
0: because I had, I got to live through that. <laughs> um, Do you have a couple, a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah. Because initially, I thought of this as you know one of the the mini episodes that I started at the beginning of, of of this podcast that I haven't been doing, where people just tell a quick story of their interaction with somebody. But now that we've had this great conversation, I haven't. A, I'd like to ask you about here. You are you're you're a professor. You're living far from home in Abu Dhabi. What are your own and your own feelings, needs, thoughts about acclaim, fame, attention? in your life what do you need what do you need from life as as a successful person in terms of
1: do you mean for myself or for yourself yes um
0: i assume you publish and yes yeah
1: yeah um and you know my my work i am not at the top of my field but i am successful um and you know people know who i am and Uh, You know, people being other philosophers who work on the very same things I work (laughs) on. So, you know, eight of them or whatever.
0: Which are, maybe, which are what?
1: I work on um, philosophical questions about the foundations of ethics. So not so much questions about, you know, which things are right, which things are wrong, which things are good and which things are bad. But rather it's the sort of very basic level. What is it for something to be right and wrong or good or bad? what would the world have to be like in order for there to be things that are, that we really have to do or that we really ought to do or that are morally required or that that are just good for us or bad for us. Um, Like many philosophical puzzles, this is one of those things that many people take for granted. And then as soon as you start thinking about it, you realize I have no idea how this actually works. Um, You know, I think there are all these things that I should do, but I don't really have any clear thoughts at all about what it is, for it to be the case that I should do something, um, and so that's those are the kinds of questions that I that I work on. Um, I mean, I, I definitely have professional ambitions. I'm very good friends with philosophers who are more successful than I am, and whose work is more well known among philosophers and I'm friends with the, you know at least some of the very few philosophers whose work is known outside of philosophy people like Kwame Anthony Appiah who you know regularly writes in the New York Times or for the Atlantic or something like that and so you know is, is known well outside of philosophy um and I you know there are definitely moments when I think well I could just really dedicate myself and maybe achieve something like that but i don't think that i need those things um you know i I think i would enjoy them um and i would be willing to sort of pursue them all out if there weren't other things in my life um that were more important to me um some you know obvious things like my family my wife and my kids but, you know, even other things like listening to music, um, I, I, yeah, I, there are pastimes I have that I wouldn't want to give up, but that I would need to give up if I really wanted to try and be a super successful philosopher. Uh, and there may be philosophers who can be super successful who don't need to do that because they're just that brilliant. Um, and I think that i'm not like that i mean i think i'm good and and but i don't think i i have that ability to just fire off brilliant without working extremely hard and yeah so i do i i do covet it sometimes and i envy my my friends and colleagues whose work is well known who are constantly getting invitations to give talks at prestigious universities um that would be that would be fun um (laughs) and i mean not just you know that that would i think i would really get a lot of gratification out of that but it's only in these i mean i think in a way that's just a fantasy right and it's not something that's seriously lacking from my life i think if my professional trajectory stays roughly where it is now i will not have regrets about my career
0: I've probably told you this, but you might not remember. I was raised by a moral philosopher who probably would say about the same (laughs) thing about his career. In the end, you know, there there are a lot of
1: professors and very few of them become really well known.
0: There are the ones who I I think you already pretty much answered this, but every few years, because my dad, he's 89, but he keeps reading books like Mm -hmm. three a day. uh, And sometimes he'll pick one up in the field or the occasional mass market or more accessible book by a you know attempt by a by a philosopher to write a book on ethics for the for the masses Mm -hmm. Uh, but that doesn't sound like it's that interesting to you you mean engaging in that kind of engaging in yeah a wider public
1: yeah no i actually think i am interested in that
0: um
1: but i do think again it's one of these things i mean even then it helps to be To be, you know, I think that the people who are interested in publishing books like that are interested in getting really well known academic philosophers to then take the ideas that they've been sharing with other professionals and try and share them with a broader audience. Um, So I think it would be, it would require a similar kind of commitment. Um, But I certainly think there's a great deal of value in doing that. And I I think, in a way, it's even harder um, to do than than just writing for other philosophers. Um, Writing well for non-philosophers while still saying interesting and important things is extremely difficult. Um, And the philosophers who can do it well, I just have a tremendous amount of admiration for. I I would enjoy being a famous philosopher, either famous among philosophers or famous among (laughs) famous more generally. Um, I would enjoy that. I think I would get real pleasure from it. Um, but there are lots of things I would get real pleasure from that I don't need, like, you know, a yacht.
0: <laughs> I've never thought about a yacht as a thing that, that I would either, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: well, see, if you, if you lived here for a yes. while, then that would be the sort of thing that you would think about because you would see these ridiculous yachts, you know, wandering by. Uh, and, yeah, like I never thought of myself as, I mean, I, you know, I, I, it never occurred to me to want to own a Maserati. Um, but then when your neighbor owns, or actually our neighbors own a Maserati and a McLaren. Um, these are these ridiculous cars uh, that were, you know, based on cars that were Formula One. Uh, right. So, you know, they, they have these. And, you know, occasionally I think not like, wow, my life is empty because I don't have a McLaren. But I do think
0: that would be fun. Mm. Well, when you get one, there will be even more impetus to come visit. I'll tell you that. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, uh, One last question thought that occurred to me, and, and that is, you might not have an answer to this, but is if there's, is there any other person that you would still dream of meeting?
1: Um, no, I mean, I think the one, um, the one that I would also be very excited to meet, but I would think I have, I, I would have more anxiety about meeting is actually Roger Federer. Um, but I think I would just be horribly intimidated by him, partly because I'm so out of shape and I'm not an athlete. And, you know, he's this sort of pristine human. being. Um, and, yeah, I think I would just feel incredibly self-conscious
0: uh, about my athleticism. Um, and I think you've had the pinnacle fan experience.
1: Yeah, right. It couldn't possibly live up to, to the experience I already had and in the end as much as I love Federer uh, and I do I I think in that it's more than I'm in awe of him um and while I was in awe of Bono I was also kind of in love with Bono and in love with his music and so I I think yeah as 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 much as I would enjoy meeting Federer I don't think it has anything like the same sort of um Import or significance um, that meeting Bono had. Um, in, in the way, you know, in a way, it's like what I said earlier, right? I mean, imagining my life without the music of U two is imagining a very different life for me. Whereas imagining my life without the tennis of Roger Federer, um, you know, I mean, I'd be missing something. But it's easy for me to. Um, to, yeah, to, to imagine it away, right? When Federer loses, I'm disappointed for a few hours, and then I get over it. Um, and if he's retired, I would think, oh, well, that's too bad, and I'd really miss him. But that would be that. Whereas when, whenever U two stops making music, or if I couldn't, you know, if I couldn't listen to their music anymore, that that would be really, that would be a real loss from my life. I mean, I'm sure I'd get over. It, it would. I That would require. Grieving.
0: You know, I've always been an on and off fan. Uh but I do remember something that you can't claim, and that is that I used to hang out in in just a song records in Albany, New York, and I remember reading about in n m e and other places and then waiting for and then buying that beautiful black and white october uh when it, the week it arrived wow. okay. so but i was that was the album that I was most the that I knew best for for most of my life and I'm a singles fan after that.
1: A lot of people find Bono insufferable. Um, and, you know, I, I'm I am glad that I don't take offense at this because I know people who get really upset when their idols are ridiculed by others. Um, you know, I have seen Bono ridiculed on South Park. Where <laughs> over and over. A big revelation. Yes, is that he's actually like a piece of shit. And... Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I have, you know, I have certainly argued with people who've questioned his politics and whether his humanitarian endeavors actually do any good. Um, But, you know, people who just see him as full of himself or whatnot. I mean, obviously I disagree. Um, And uh, people who find their music bombastic or simplistic or whatever, again, I disagree. Um, But somehow I don't take it personally. Um, Certainly the vitriol with which people react to him is something that I often just find puzzling and
0: amusing. I'm I'm pretty much with you on that. Thank you. This was was wonderful. (laughs) This was beyond all I could have imagined for this story. Take care.
1: All right. Take care, Jamie.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Matthew Silverstein... Uh, you can Google his name. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds with Matthew and Silver and Steen. To find out more about this show, go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. And there you can find contact information or you can just email info at that address and get in touch with us. If you have anything you'd like to share, but especially a Meet Your Heroes story, or if you'd like to uh, get that Bono fellow in touch with us to see if he remembers it and wants to tell his side of the story or his feelings about fame, we would really strongly consider airing that. Uh, Coming up, we are headed towards our 50th episode, and couple of people that we will be speaking to, I'm very happy to say are Michael Ian Black, uh, comedian actor, uh, political activist on Twitter, and just yesterday, I spoke to uh, this American Life's wonderful Elna Baker, and she'll be coming up too, along with other folks. Thank you so much for listening. This is 15 minutes. Ed Patnode. Engineers and Christian Kandari made the music, and I'm Jamie Berger.